All right, well, if you'll uh, take your Bible and turn to Philippians chapter 4, if you haven't already, I am uh, so thankful for God's Word. I know I need it. I'm looking forward to even thinking about these truths together today. I want to look with you at Philippians chapter 4 and talk a little bit about spiritual stability, or you could uh, say uh, about being strong. We want to be a spiritually stable church. We want to be a strong church, in other words. The way that Paul puts it in Philippians chapter 4, verse 1, he says, Therefore, my brothers whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. And it's those two words there, stand firm, that we want to talk about. Those are really the words that we're thinking about. Apparently, they are words that you would use to describe a soldier who was at his post in the middle of a battle. Stand firm. Uh, don't retreat. Don't give up. Don't look back. Don't run away. Don't move. Be strong. That's the image behind the command. Paul wants us to be strong like a soldier in battle would. And I want to talk about being a church that stands strong, stands firm like that for a couple of reasons. One is just because of how important this was to the Apostle Paul. It's obvious that this was important to him if you look at the terms of affection in the verse itself. My brothers, he says, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, my beloved. These are people that were very dear to the Apostle Paul. It's like he's pouring his heart out here. I want you, I want you to stand strong. Please stand strong. And then there's the fact that he is repeating himself. This isn't actually the first time he's given this command in the book of Philippians. He's already commanded them to stand firm earlier back in chapter 1, where he says and talks about living in a manner worthy of the gospel. And as he calls on them to live in a manner worthy of the gospel, he says, you have to stand firm. And this is a command that he not only repeats in Philippians, it's one that he says over and over and over throughout the rest of his letters. Different churches, different situations, same commands. Stand firm, be strong. Here in Philippians, he's already told us that he wants us to imitate him and to live for Christ and to live for eternity. And he's warned us that we're living in a a world around many people who aren't living for Christ and who are going to try to influence us to live for now. But he has said we can't because we are citizens of another kingdom. And now he's pleading with us to stand firm, to be strong. I want to look at this command because it's important to Paul and then also because it's not very important uh, to most of the people we meet all around us. This is not really a command that is actually valued in the world right now. Standing strong spiritually is not something our culture values, not conforming. If I talk about us being a church that is standing strong, and I use a military kind of image like this, we need to be a church that, that, that is like soldiers, really, in battle, standing firm. There are not going to be a lot of people out there who think that's a valuable quality in us as a church. In fact, there are going to be a lot of pejorative terms that they're going to use for us. For example, fundamentalist. Is there anything worse that you can call 
anyone now in days than fundamentalists. And that's the idea people get in their minds when you talk about standing firm, being strong. There's actually a lot of pressure to conform. That's another reason we need to talk about this. We're living in America, obviously, and we're supposed to be, I know, this culture where everybody just kind of does their own thing and we just do what we want to do. But the fact is, actually, that our culture, the American culture, believes certain things about the world and how it works. And it's actually pretty amazing how uniform those beliefs are at the core. I was uh, talking to a Muslim and a Buddhist recently at different times. And uh, you would think those two people would be very different, a Muslim and a Buddhist. But when you got to the core belief system, when you got past being a Buddhist or a Muslim and actually heard what they actually thought, uh, they were not really Buddhist or Muslim. They were just American. They said almost the same exact things. Sometimes I tell my, my children, it's, it's funny, but you can go into a Starbucks, for example, and you look at the people working behind the counter. And, and say you would have a list that you brought into the Starbucks of controversial topics. And it's amazing how often you can pretty much guess what they're going to say about those topics before they even say anything. And that's because our culture is constantly discipling us. It's telling us what to believe. We all think we are so special and unique, and that's kind of ironic because it's actually what our culture is telling us to think about ourselves. Our culture is telling us to think we're all pretty special and unique, but we're not usually that different, really, because there's just a lot of pressure to believe the same things, and not just to believe the same things because the culture probably doesn't even care as much that you believe those things as they do that you live and think and feel the same way people who believe those things do. The biblical way of putting it would be Romans 12 too, where Paul says, do not be conformed to this world. And he says that because the world is seeking to conform you to it, and it does a pretty good job because it's got a lot of means at its disposal. Culture and society are in the full-time business of making disciples. Not to Jesus, obviously, but to its kind of lifestyle. And so I want to talk about standing firm. One, because it's important to the Apostle Paul. Two, because it's not valued in the world, not really valued. Three, because it's rare to meet a person who is standing strong against their culture. And four, because there is a lot of pressure not to stand firm, especially spiritually. And then I, I think just one more reason we could throw in there is because there are a lot of different ideas about what it means for us as a church to stand strong, and I'm not sure that all of those ideas are actually what Paul means by standing firm and being strong. In fact, I think many of the ideas people have about what it means to be a strong church are actually more our culture's ideas of standing strong believe it or not. And, and so we want to look at this command that Paul gives us here to stand firm, and we want to ask three questions. First, what does it mean exactly to stand firm spiritually? Second, why is this such an important quality for us? And then third, how do we develop it? First, what does it mean? Paul commands us, verse 1, to stand firm. What does it mean? And that's important because there's probably a bunch of ideas that come into your mind when you think about someone who is standing strong. 
one of the most common ideas I find that people have about standing strong is that they think it means to be super opinionated about everything. If you are super opinionated about everything, then you really are a strong person or you're standing firm. But is that the idea that's coming into Paul's mind? That's the important question. And I think we can answer that question by looking at the text a little more carefully because Paul doesn't just say stand firm. He actually gives us two ways we can learn what it means to stand firm. And so the first way is just by looking at the commands he gives in verses 2 through 8. And we know we can look there because in verse 1 of Philippians chapter 4, Paul says, Therefore, my brothers whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. And you can bold print thus. That word thus is important. The New American Standard, I think, says in this way. In what way are we to stand firm? In the way Paul explains in verses 2 through 8. So in verses 2 through 8, Paul gives a series of commands that unpack what it means to stand firm. We need to stand firm, but what does it look like? First, it looks like pursuing unity. Standing firm means pursuing unity. In other words, when Paul says you need to stand firm, he's saying you need to be the kind of person who works at godly relationships. That's what we're talking about, verses 2 and 3. I entreat Yodia and Syneche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. That's actually what he means by standing firm. If you look at the other time he uses it in Philippians, back in chapter 1, it's about pursuing unity. Second, it looks like rejoicing in all circumstances. And I'm going to kind of fly through these. But standing firm means being the kind of person who has joy no matter what's going on. Verse 4, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Third, it means everyone can see how gentle you are to be the kind of person who is kind under pressure. Verse 5, let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Fourth, it means not to worry about anything, to be the kind of person who controls his thoughts. Verse 6, do not be anxious about anything. Fifth, it means to respond to troubles with thankful prayer, to be the kind of person who is grateful in all kinds of different situations. Paul says, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Six, it means to experience a peace from God, which is so big that it is beyond your ability to explain, which protects your heart in Jesus, to be the kind of person who feels the pain, who's in a situation, he feels the pain, and he talks to God, and he's honest, and he doesn't always like the situation that he's in, but he demonstrates a deep core trust that God is for him, and seeking his good. Verse 7, Paul says, And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Seventh, it means to have a mind that's filled with beautiful thoughts. Verse 8, Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. That's what it means to stand firm. Or to come at it from the other angle, we might say standing firm, being a, a church that stands firm, means being a church that's not in sinful conflicts with people all the time. And it means not running away from relationships just because they're difficult. 
doing what you can before God for peace. I'm just looking at verses 2 through 8 and flipping them around. It means not giving up and, being, and not being willing to do the hard things just because they're hard things. It means not complaining all the time when things are not the way you like them. It means not becoming so focused on what is difficult that you can't think of any reason for joy. Standing strong, being a church that stands firm means not having your happiness completely based on your circumstances. Not being the kind of person who's controlled by how you feel when you wake up in the morning. It means not consistently freaking out every time something tough happens. It means not worrying instead of praying. Not being the kind of person who doesn't have anything to be thankful for. It means not thinking on lies, not thinking on things that are shameful, not thinking on things that aren't fair, that aren't beautiful, that aren't kind, that aren't good, not having a mind constantly controlled by crazy thoughts, which I don't know is, is maybe a different idea than people sometimes have in their minds when it comes to standing firm. But it is one way Paul explains what it means to be spiritually strong. What does a strong church look like? It looks like obeying these commands to pursue unity, to rejoice when it's hard, to be gentle, to think true thoughts in a, in a, in a crazy world. Another way we can learn what it means to be strong, though, is not just by looking at these commands in verses 2 through 8. Another way we can learn what it means is by looking at Paul's life. We can look at verses 2 through 8, or we could look at Paul himself, because Paul actually gives us a personal example of spiritual stability in verses 9 and following. In fact, if you look at how these verses work, after Paul calls on us to stand firm and then gives us this long series of commands in verses 2 through 8 that unpack what it means to stand firm, he adds in verse 9, look at it, what, it, what you have learned and received and heard and seen in me Practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. And so if you want to know what it looks like to be spiritually stable and to live out all these qualities, Paul says, you need to look at me. Look at my life, which brings us back to what we looked at last week, right? And then in verses 10 through 13, to help us know how to imitate him, he gives us this beautiful picture of what spiritual stability looks like in real life. He writes, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly. And to, to feel the impact of what Paul's saying here, you have to appreciate his situation a little. Because first, he's writing this letter to the Philippians from prison. So what you call a prison epistle. And so he's writing from Rome. He's in prison in Rome. And he's been in prison a pretty long time, actually. You remember how all this happened. Paul had gone to Jerusalem and he'd gone into the temple when some Jews who had come all the way from Asia because they uh, were there to, to worship, saw him, and they got this huge crowd to together, and they grabbed Paul, and they dragged him out of the temple, and they were trying to kill him. When these Roman soldiers heard about it, they came to the temple to calm things down by arresting Paul, took him back uh, to their barracks in chains, actually, and eventually, after a series of events, they took him all the way to this jail in another city called Caesarea, where he sat for, listen to this, two years. Not because he had done anything wrong, but because the person who was in charge wanted to do the Jews a favor. Until finally Paul is able to make his defense where the Roman officials who had shown up to listen admit that he hadn't done anything wrong, but they decided to send him to Rome 
to stand before Caesar. And Paul goes on this long, hard journey with all these soldiers and with all these other prisoners to get to Rome, where he's put on house arrest, chained to a soldier, basically, for at least two more years. So we're talking around four years in prison at this point, as Paul is writing this letter to the Philippians. What's your temptation? If you're in prison for four years for Jesus. And you know, one of the things that would have made this imprisonment even more difficult was the fact that Paul, while he was in prison, had been sharing the gospel with all these different people who had been chained to him, these soldiers who had been chained to him. You get chained to Paul, you know what you're going to get is a, is a, a sermon. And, and many of those soldiers were deeply impacted and even ended up telling other soldiers until thousands of these soldiers in Rome knew about Paul, which was amazing. But some people who said they were Christians saw that and got jealous. And you think that's impossible, but it's totally not impossible if you realize how we even work sometimes today. And they start preaching the gospel, Paul says, thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. And I'm not sure exactly, but somehow they saw Paul in prison for serving Jesus, and they wanted to make him suffer more than he already was. And think about that. Because I'm wanting you to get a feel for the situation that Paul's in. In prison for a long time, unfairly, with people who were supposed to be his friends trying to make him suffer. And some of the churches he had planted were, were struggling. And none of those churches during the time that he was imprisoned really helping. In fact, if you look at verse 15, Paul says, From the time he started preaching in Philippi, no church entered into partnership with him in giving and receiving except for the Philippians. So this is the one church who's been looking out for him. And yet, check this out. There was a time when he was imprisoned when even they weren't able to. Look back at verse 10. I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at length, after some time, in other words, you have revived your concern for me. And again, I'm really wanting you to think about that. Imagine, you are in prison for serving Jesus. People want you dead. Others, who are supposed to be your friends, are trying to make you suffer. The churches you planted are having all these problems. And the one church that you knew you could count on isn't able to help you. How you doing at that moment? What's going on inside your head? How would you describe that particular time in your life? How are you thinking about God and about other people? Check out the Apostle Paul. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Now look at this. Verse 11. Not that I'm speaking of being in need, which I think is just this absolutely incredible statement. In prison, on trial for your life, no one supporting you, almost everyone attacking you. That, to me, seems like almost the very definition of being in need for most of us but not for Paul, which right there 
is spiritual stability. That is what it looks like to stand firm. And you see that all throughout this letter. What's he doing as he's in prison? He's writing this letter to help them pursue unity. He's trying to help them have peaceful relationships. He's rejoicing, chapter 1, verse 11. Yes, and I will rejoice. He's speaking with such kindness. He's talking about his affection for them. He's gentle. He's praying with thanksgiving. He's not freaking out. He's peaceful, even in the face of death. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. And he's talking about what is true and what is honorable and what is just and what is pure. That is spiritual stability. That is standing firm. That's the kind of spiritual stability he wants for the Philippians and that God wants for us as a church. We've been talking gospel culture lately, and one of the reasons why we're looking at this passage is because this is such a good summary. This this needs to be our culture. We really need to help each other be a church that stands firm like that. Why? Why? That's the second question. First question, what does it mean to stand firm spiritually. Look at verses 2 through 8, the commands, or, or look at the Apostle Paul. But, but second question, why should we stand firm? Two big reasons from this passage. One reason is because it enables you to glorify God in every situation. Think about Paul. What's standing firm doing for Paul? The fact that Paul is standing firm enables him to take advantage of the situation that he's found himself in and actually use being in prison as an opportunity for bringing God's glory. If you go back to Philippians chapter 1, verse 12, you need to listen to how Paul thought of four years of being unfairly imprisoned. He says, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me, four years of being unfairly imprisoned, has really served to advance the gospel so that it's become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. And that is huge. That is huge. You see, what happens when you're spiritually unstable, when you're a person who is not standing firm, if we're a church that is not standing firm, what happens when you're spiritually unstable is that you take even good situations and make them bad by becoming so focused on yourself that you're not even thinking about the glory of God. But what happens when you are spiritually stable, when you are standing firm, is that you're trusting. No matter what situation God's placed you in, you're there for a reason and a good one. And so you're freed up from trying so hard to fix everything, and you're able to focus on doing what you can to make God look beautiful. You want to be spiritually stable, to stand firm. This is good for you. First, because it enables you to glorify God no matter what situation you find yourself in. And second, because it enables you to enjoy other people rather than go around all the time bitter and angry and upset about them. Again, take Paul here with the Philippians. Because imagine you're in prison and your friends are not able to help you. That's even hard for most of us to imagine, right? But you're in prison and your friends are not able to help you. What are you tempted to think about them if you're not spiritually stable? You're thinking, why are they not doing more? Why aren't they caring for me? 
And you're probably complaining, maybe even to the prison guard. Can you believe this? I planted these churches. Do you see them feeding me? And, and when they finally do send you some help, here's what's crazy. Instead of enjoying the help they sent you and being grateful, you know what you're like? You're like, why didn't they do this sooner? And why didn't they do more? This is all they sent? Are you serious? I'm in prison for preaching the gospel. And this is what I get? Where Paul here is basically the opposite. How's he thinking about the Philippians generally? He tells us in Philippians chapter 1, verse 3, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy. I'm not hearing any bitterness there. And then when they're finally able to help him, what does he say in chapter 4, verse 10? He says, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you've revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Listen, I look at Paul. If there's one thing you should want, it's this kind of spiritual stability. And you need it. We need it. Because life is hard. The Christian life especially is hard. And what happens if you're not standing firm is that you get scared and you end up wasting your life because you're always running around here and there trying to make everything better and it doesn't work and your relationships start to suffer because you're so focused on yourself and your situation you don't think you have time to care for others and you don't even appreciate the people who are caring for you because you're always thinking they should have done this or they could have done more when Marta was going through cancer a while back, one of the things that we noticed is that there is suffering. There's an actual event that is unpleasant and painful and, and that's hard. And then there is also all this other stuff that we bring to the table because of spiritual immaturity that adds to our suffering. So the cancer and the chemotherapy and all of that is hard, of course. But there's a whole other level of much worse suffering that you actually produce. It doesn't have to be there, but you produce it because of being spiritually unstable. I don't know, maybe to say it another way. One of the things we often tell each other as a family is that we don't want to suffer when we're not suffering. So uh, when Marta was going through chemotherapy, even though chemotherapy is terrible, <laughs> and uh, cancer is so hard, the reality for us in our particular situation was that there, was, there were parts that were not hard, that were legitimately enjoyable. Like there were days that were good. But we saw how easily we could have taken those really good moments and made them hard by becoming so focused on ourselves and complaining and forgetting that Jesus is coming back and spending all of our time instead thinking about how we were feeling instead of what God says is actually true. And of course, we all know Marta is the one who had cancer, not me, so the we there is more <laughs> Marta. I had a different level of suffering and I'm so thankful that she didn't do that. She didn't add suffering to our suffering, which was hard, which was hard. <laughs> Because we're living in a world right now where almost everyone thinks the primary reason I'm so sad and so disappointed and so confused right now is because people aren't treating me right. 
and because my circumstances just need to become better. I mean, we are Americans, we love labels, and we love explanations. And so we can't just have things be hard. We have to come up with all kinds of labels and explanations that somehow we think that label and explanation makes it better because we have the label and explanation. And we think, ah, oh, the reason why we're suffering or having such a difficult time is because of these people or these circumstances or this label. My, my circumstances just need to become more stable when the reality is, a lot of the time, you just need to become more stable. You need to learn to stand firm. We need to learn to stand firm. The question, of course, is how? How, how, how? That's the third question. We, we need to stand firm. This is what Paul wants in verse 1. We get a little glimpse of what it looks like and why we should want it in verses 2 through 13. But how? How do we do this? First, one of the first steps to becoming more spiritually stable is recognizing your responsibility to be spiritually stable. In other words, recognizing that standing firm as a Christian is a matter of obedience. All these things that we've been reading about in, in verses 1 through 9 of chapter 4 are commands. Standing firm is a command. Agreeing in the Lord is a command. Rejoicing always, being gentle, not being anxious, praying with thanksgiving, thinking about the right things are all commands, which means what? It means that not standing firm, not rejoicing, not being gentle, being anxious, not praying are sins. And... and, and for some of us, that sounds hard, but it's, it's hard. I'll tell you what's hard. It's hard to move forward if you're constantly making excuses. And in our day, people are willing to give you lots of excuses. But growth starts with stopping making excuses and actually repenting, which, of course, some people take as almost mean nowadays, like, how dare you, especially when they're in difficult circumstances and especially when they're unstable, they hear all these commands and they start feeling like that guilt and shame and they hate feeling guilty. But listen, I wanna tell you something that can change some people's lives. <laughs> there are worse things in the world than feeling guilty. In fact, worse than feeling guilty is being guilty and not feeling guilty because there is a savior for people who are guilty and know they are guilty. Jesus came for sinners. If you look at your life and you're not standing firm, you read these commands and you're feeling guilty, you know what you should do? You should remember there is a savior named Jesus who died for people who are guilty and whose love for you is not based on how spiritually stable you are and who doesn't wait for you to be spiritually stable to forgive you and to enter into a relationship with you, but who is willing to be your friend and you should run to him and you should ask for forgiveness for the ways that you have failed to stand firm and trust that he is able to help you. And he is able to help you. Jesus is able to help you. The very fact that he gives these commands means that he expects you to obey these commands. He's not going to command you to do things that are impossible for you to do as a Christian. 
And so, of course, you're not going to become perfect in this life. That shouldn't be your expectation, but you can become spiritually mature. And becoming spiritually mature begins with recognizing you need to work on being spiritually mature, whether you feel like it or not. I know it sounds a little silly, but the thing is, sometimes I meet people who are not where Paul is in the book of Philippians. They read Paul there, about Paul there, and they're like, I am not even close to where Paul is. And they think that means I can never get to where Paul is. So I don't even try. For them, it's like, you know what? If I'm not this right now at this moment in my life, then I shouldn't even work on becoming this because a person like me can't. And if you're a Christian, truly born again, that is a lie. That is not true at all. Take responsibility. You need to learn to stand firm. And you can see, if you look at verse 9, that Paul even gives you a hint where to start. He says, what you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. Paul's like, if you want to stand firm, recognize your responsibility, and two, look at me, because my teachings and my life point you towards how you can stand firm. And obviously, there's a lot of places we could look in Paul's life to learn how to stand firm. But if we just look at Paul in verses 10 through 13, what quality do we see in him that enabled him to respond to dif the difficulties of life the way he did? This is the very quality that your whole culture is discipling you not to have. <laughs> so no wonder, especially in our culture, that it's so hard to find individuals who are standing firm. Because this is the quality, there's one quality that is absolutely essential if you're gonna stand firm. And you got the whole world pressing on you not to have this quality. And that quality is contentment. Listen to this again, verse 10. I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no, no opportunity. Not that I am speaking of being in need. And here it is. For I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. How could Paul respond to the circumstances of life the way he did? He tells us, for or because I have learned in whatever situation I am in to be content. And that is such a huge concept. Contentment is the key to spiritual stability. If you want to stand firm, to be a strong, spiritually strong person, you absolutely have to learn to become content. Or to say it the other way, discontentment is at the root of so much instability in our lives. If you meet someone who is not content, it is not long until funny things start happening, like really funny things. This is one of those core issues that messes us up. I mean, one big reason you get into sinful conflicts with people all the time, and you don't rejoice, and you aren't gentle, and you are anxious, and you're not thankful, and you aren't at peace, and you're thinking all these different thoughts, is because you aren't content. In other words, you don't think you have enough. And that's basically what the word Paul uses here for content means, having enough. Or I guess not just having enough, really, but believing you have enough, being convinced you have enough. And what Paul's talking about here is a heart attitude. And that's often where we don't go. I've noticed talking to people uh, who are, like, unstable, and they're going up and down, 
and they're in conflicts and they're angry at God or they're just apathetic, they don't often talk about what's going on in their heart. And the heart, biblically, is what you think, what you want, the inner you. In fact, a lot of times, the closer you get to heart, the more they turn to the heart, the more they turn on the fog machine. You know, it's like you're trying to do surgery with someone who keeps turning on the fog machine, so it's so hard to see. You're getting to the heart of the heart. People who are not willing to stand firm turn on a fog machine so that you can't see what's going on in their heart. Instead, they're talking about other people, that's part of the fog machine, or about their circumstances, that's part of the fog machine, and they're saying these kinds of things are the reason they're, they're going up and down, when really they should be looking at what's going on in their heart, because of the ups and downs, the freaking out, that's a symptom. It's a symptom of what's so often happening in our hearts when we're not standing firm, when we're not wanting to persevere when we're becoming bitter or we're unthankful or whatever, it, it, what's going on is that we don't really think we have enough. That's why we're scared. That's why we're so desperately longing for something more that we're willing to sin to get it. That's why we want to give up because we don't think we can do it. We don't have enough to even do it. And we think that the reason we feel that way is because of our circumstances or our personality when ultimately it's not. It's that we haven't learned to be content. And sadly, because we're not looking at our hearts, we're looking so much at the situation, we put so much on the situation, focus on the situation and changing the situation that we're willing to compromise to get out of that situation or not get into the situation, which is part of what creates all the instability. Because there's a lot of times when we can't change our circumstances, or if we can and we compromise and change our situation, we get to this other situation, and when we get there, we find out we didn't really solve the problem. And so after a little while, we start to think there's some other place we need to get to have enough, and so we compromise and run over there. This is a big deal. This is a big deal. If you're going to stand firm, which you should want, it has all these benefits and enables you to glorify God and enjoy people, if you're not going to go up and down, up and down, up and down, you've got to stop making your first priority working on changing your circumstances and start making your first priority working on your heart. Becoming convinced in your heart that you have enough in every situation. You're brought low, you have enough. You're exalted, you have enough. You're on your own, you have enough. You have all kinds of friends, you have enough. You feel terrible, you have enough. You feel great, you have enough. You're a failure, you have enough. Everything you try doesn't work out, you have enough. You're a success, you have enough. Everybody loves you, you have enough. If you are really truly convinced that in every situation that you are in, you have what you need to survive and thrive in that situation, you're not always going to be moving here and there. You're not always going to be attracted to, so attracted to every new idea that's out there. You're not going to be so jealous of people. You're not going to have such a hard time rejoicing. You're not going to feel like you have to pressure people to give you what you want. You're not going to have such a hard time coming up with reason to give thanks. So the question now is, if contentment is the key to spiritual stability, to standing strong, how do you become a person who is convinced he has enough in all these different circumstances for all these different situations. And again, there's a lot we could learn if we just looked everywhere at Paul. 
But focusing specifically on these verses, I think one thing we see clearly is that it was something he had to learn. He says in verse 11, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. Verse 12, I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound, which makes it sound almost like a skill. You have to know how to do this. You cannot know how to do this. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. And learning the secret implies you don't naturally know how to do this. Meaning, this is not a temperament thing we're talking about. We know, of course, some people are born more laid back. They're just like, they're just born chilled, it seems. And other people are born more fussy. But no matter what your personality is, you are going to have to learn Christian contentment. This is a skill we all have to learn, no matter what your personality is. I, I think probably here, living where we do, we face a lot of pre pressure that makes it actually harder for us to learn this skill. But we all have to learn it. Sometimes uh, children don't like the fact that they have to learn. I mean, I don't know if any of your kids have been like this. They don't like that they have to go to school um, and, and have to learn. So they kind of wish, if they have to go to school, that they would already know what they were supposed to know. And so they get frustrated when they don't know something. And even sometimes, I, I've met children who wanted to give up just because they didn't know when they started at school. And as parents, we kind of have to tell them, not knowing how is, is not a reason to stop going to school. That's part of why you're in school. You, you, you're there to learn. And the same is true with becoming content. If you look at your life and you're like, but second of all, you have to take advantage of the fact that God is already trying to teach you how to be content. One of the things Paul, one of the things that happened in Paul's life that enabled him to be convinced he had enough for every situation is that God brought him through so many different situations. The phrase, I, I learned the secret, is actually a pretty unusual way of speaking in the Bible. And one of the things it could mean is that I learned through personal experience. So how did Paul know that he had enough when he was brought low? One way is that God brought him low and he saw that he had enough. And how did Paul learn that he had enough even when he had abundance? One way he learned is that God gave him more than he needed. Sometimes we wonder, why is God bringing me through all these situations if he loves me? when the reason he is bringing you through all these situations is because he loves you. And he's trying to teach you something you desperately need, which is that he's enough. And if you will just look back at your life, I think you'll see that he's already done a lot to teach you how to be content. But you have to actually be paying attention. That's the thing. It's kind of like a few years ago, we were in uh, Malawi. And I may have told you this story, but they, story, but they were having a a fuel shortage and so there was no fuel anywhere and we had to travel across the country and we only had so much fuel with us and for the whole part of the first part of that trip I was so worried and I was thinking what are we gonna do if we get lost and that was consuming so much of my mind until I finally just stopped and realized here I am I'm 40 years old at that point I was 40 years old and God had taken care of me every day 
So literally, I'm sitting there. I had 40 years of proof from personal experience that God could take care of me in every situation. And so, you know, I thought, I'm going to just take advantage of all that I've learned over the past 40 years and stop worrying. It's a little like something I was reading in James chapter 1. James 1 says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces endurance, and let endurance have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. And most of us, we look at the end of the verse there in James, and we say, yeah, that's what I want. I want to be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. Yeah, that's the kind of Christian I want to be. Sort of like we would say we want to be content, to know we have enough. But the, but the problem is, we don't like how God gets us there. Because how does God get us to the point where we're perfect and complete? It's through trials. And that's also part of the process he uses to teach us how to be content. And so we need to stop fighting against it. And instead, thank him and learn from him. You don't have a husband right now and you really want one? What if God's using that situation to teach you that he's enough? Everything's going well for you and you're winning at everything and yet you're not feeling satisfied? What if God is using that situation to teach you that he alone can satisfy? The first way you learn to be content is to make sure that you're actually listening as God uses your life to teach you. But second, the second way is to actively exercise your faith in his promises. Paul says, verse 12, I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. And I can't believe he's just going to leave it at that, you know, without actually telling us the secret. That doesn't seem like Paul. I've learned the secret. Hope you learn it someday. Um, that would be good for you. I think he tells us the secret in the very next verse, verse 13. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. And look, believing that is the key to contentment. Believing, no matter what situation I face in the future, and that's the all things, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. All things obviously doesn't mean whatever things I want Paul to mean. It means the kinds of things Paul is talking about. And what's Paul talking about? He's talking about being hungry and honoring God. He's talking about being in need and living for Jesus. He's talking about having abundance and plenty and still glorifying Christ. So how can you rejoice in all circumstances? How can you pursue peace with difficult people? How can you think beautiful thoughts? How can you not freak out? How can you stand firm? Because you know, you're convinced, whatever situation you're in, you will have enough. But how can you know that? How can you be sure if you have to be single for your entire life? Come on. If, if your spouse dies, if you live your whole life poor, if you never are a success, if you are a success, if you have an incredible marriage, how can you know that you can handle that? Certainly not because you know that you can handle that, but because you know Jesus can. Does Jesus have the power to honor God in every situation? Yes. We've seen it. He's proven it. And if you are a believer, Jesus is committed to supernaturally strengthening you to be able to honor and obey him no matter what situation he places you in. Which, of course, is the key. Because, you see, Paul's not convinced when he doesn't have enough food that God's going to give him enough to eat. He's convinced that if he doesn't have enough food, God will give him the strength he needs to honor him when he's hungry. 
which is an exciting promise for those who are living in Christ. Because it means whatever situation you're in as a believer, God will give you what you need to glorify him. Lights on, lights off. I wonder sometimes if we understand how committed God is to our spiritual good. If you're a Christian, look, God has chosen you before the foundation of the world. Can I just encourage you? And he's chosen you so that you will be holy and blameless before him. He loves you. And he made a deliberate decision knowing you. You think you know you. He knew you. And he chose, knowing you, to adopt you so that you could be part of his family. You belong to him. You are in him. You have literally been united to Jesus. Jesus is not just a savior who is outside of you. He is a savior who dwells within you. He has set you free from sin through his work on your behalf. Absolutely every single evil thing that you have ever thought or done has been forgiven. And he is committed long-term to you. He's got an inheritance for you. He is planning to glorify you. He is, he is looking to spend eternity with you. Do you believe that? You need to believe that. The same power that raised Jesus from the dead, that seated Jesus at God's right hand, that raised you from the spiritual dead, that united Jews and Gentiles and made them a church, is the power that is working in you. Because that's how you stand firm. Knowing that, believing that, that's how we become a truly spiritually strong church. And a spiritually strong church like that is going to stand out. It doesn't take much for us to write things on Facebook or share these opinions that really aren't in the Bible. And it doesn't usually make us stand out as being all that different either because everyone out there is just sharing their ideas and opinions. It seems like that's just part of being American. But how do we become the kind of people who are willing to work hard at relationships? who rejoice in all circumstances and who are gentle when people are tough on us and who are thankful and peaceful and not overwhelmed with worry because that is different. That is different. That is a different culture. And that takes strength. And that kind of strength enables us to really put Jesus on display. But how does that happen? One big way that happens is we stop fighting so much as God brings us through all these different life experiences, good and bad, and arguing so much, and we listen to what he's teaching us about himself. So you're in a difficult situation, and you, it's really hard, and you're tempted, but you, you slow down and you realize, you know what? This is a moment. God is teaching me his sufficiency. He's teaching me he really is enough. And you come to personally experience that over and over, that he really is enough. As you deliberately choose not to run, not to give up, not to complain, not to argue, but to trust that if he's brought you into this particular situation, no matter how impossible that situation may seem for you personally, it's not impossible at all for him. You have enough because he is enough. And he will give you 
all you need to glorify him, which is what you want if you really are a Christian. Above everything else, that's what we want as a church to glorify God. That is our goal. That is our vision. That is the ultimate thing we're seeking above comfort, above us getting our way, God's glory. And because we know God is going to give us what we need to glorify him, we don't have to be so scared. We don't have to live our lives so uncertain. We don't have to always be trying to take things into our hand and hands and make them better for ourselves. Because we realize, sure, things may not go the way we want right now, but we can stand firm. We can glorify God because we have what we need. And we know that because we have Jesus. And more importantly, because we believe Jesus has us. Jesus has us. And Jesus is committed to providing all the strength we need to stand firm and obey these commands. If we stop trying to be Jesus, we stop trying to be God and take everything into our own hands, and we stop focusing so much on our circumstances and focus instead on him, look at him, get to know him, obey him, and commit to trusting him and doing what he wants, no matter what, no matter what. Let's pray that we will become a church who imitates Paul, who really gives an example to this world of what it looks like to be spiritually strong. Uh, we do that, we're going to stand out. And we can, can do that because Jesus can give us what we need to obey. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. Uh, We're so grateful for the way you speak to us through what was spoken so many years ago. Lord, I don't know what people are going through, uh, what they're discouraged about or struggling with, but I pray that your Holy Spirit will, will speak through your word to them today and give them strength, cause them to look to Jesus not make excuses, but look to Jesus. And Lord, if any of us just don't know what to do, we're so on the edge of giving up, please uh, give us the strength to at least ask for help. And we pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen.